I'm Carrie Miller, and my next book interview is a novel set in the waning days of the Civil War. It tells the story of a corps of slaves turned soldiers as they confront resistance to an America that is changing. Scholar Eric Foner has spent decades researching that era of American history. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his work. In his 2019 book, The Second Founding, He writes about how the war and the reconstruction that followed forever altered our Constitution. Here's that interview. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News. Now, how three amendments to the Constitution altered the course of history and changed what it means to be an American. Several weeks ago, we took our cue from the terrific New York Times 1619 Project, And we talked about how teachers struggle to teach the history of slavery and why that limits our preparation as adults for the debates that the country is engaging in. Here's Evanston Township High School history teacher Corey Winchester. Slavery has such a huge backdrop, and we haven't started to talk about and to acknowledge the ways in which the United States as a nation has gotten to be where it is as a result of that. Right. That's just not in our political discourse. It's not in our historical discourse. It's not in our sociological discourse in the ways that it needs to be. But if we're not learning what we need to know about slavery, we're also not learning enough about the constitutional amendments that defined what America was as we came to terms with it during Reconstruction. Historian Eric Foner calls this period the second founding, and he writes in his new book, One might almost say that we are still trying to work out the consequences of the abolition of American slavery. In that sense, Reconstruction never ended. As Mr. Foner joins us this morning, I'd like you to think about this. Do you feel that you know your Civil War and Reconstruction history well enough to understand the legacy of slavery and how it influences our debates today about race and justice? Where are the gaps in your knowledge? So as we talk about the Civil War era and Reconstruction, I'm wondering if you are aware of the gaps in your knowledge, if you think you know that history well enough to understand the legacy of slavery and how it influences the debates we are having right now in 2019. Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000. 800-242-2828. Bring your questions and your observations to Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Eric Foner is a Pulitzer Prize-winning Civil War historian. He's the author of many books, including The Fiery Trial, which we talked about on this show. His new book is titled The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. And he joins us today from New York City. And Eric, welcome back to the show. It's really a pleasure to have you on today. Very nice to be here again. Uh, As you can tell, I I thought about your work as we were having that conversation a couple weeks ago uh, with these two teachers who are struggling to teach this period of history and why the gaps in our knowledge leave students and I think many adults ill-prepared for our debates today. Can Can you share your insight on why untruly understanding this history beyond the dates and the details prepares us for the kinds of conversations we're having today. Well, uh, I commend those teachers you spoke to. Uh, Teaching in uh, high school is a lot harder job than I have at a university. 
Um, you know, the thing is that the, as, as I think you alluded to, the you know, so many of the issues that face us today, uh, whether it's who should have the right to vote, uh, who has a right to become a citizen of this country, um, impeachment <laughs> was first tried out uh, during Reconstruction, uh, how to deal with terrorism. This was a time of rampant terrorism, homegrown, the Ku Klux Klan, groups like that. All those issues are Reconstruction issues, as well as being on the front pages of our newspapers today. So it is essential, I think, that Americans, you can't think about what's going on in our country today without knowing something about the Civil War and the period after it. Um, if you want to know, if you want to think about it in one, you know, soundbite, I would say that what they tried to do with these constitutional amendments, <clears throat> the 13th, 14th, and 15th, and the whole Reconstruction um you know, effort was to create, to use a modern phrase, regime change, mm. to change a regime based on slavery, which is what we had from the revolution up to the Civil War, to a regime based on freedom. What kind of changes are necessary beyond striking the chains or four million people, important as that is? They had to face this question of what is going to be the status of the former slaves in American society? Are they going to be citizens? Are they going to have equality? Um, those issues were debated. What kind of nation is this really? Um, and um, that's why this is a very important period to understand. And that's why those three amendments were put into the Constitution to try to create a society that went beyond race, beyond racial inequality, which is not an easy thing to do in the immediate aftermath of slavery. Yeah, I, I think you've just I think you've just alluded to this idea that in the eighteen nineties, in Reconstruction, America was wrestling with who what it meant to be an American, right? What kind of a community in the largest sense, what kind of a society we would have. And and I was reading something that you wrote in 2015 in an op-ed about this in The Times. You said, citizenship, rights, democracy, as long as these remain contested, so will the necessity of an accurate understanding of Reconstruction. More than most historical subjects, how we think about this era truly matters for it forces us to think about what kind of society we wish America to be. I don't know that we're very accustomed to this idea of thinking beyond just knowledge of it kind of in the rearview mirror, just that how fresh and present it is to the kinds of debates we're having today. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that's uh, I did write that, and I believe it very strongly, and I have spent a lot of my academic life writing and teaching about uh, the Civil War and the Reconstruction period that followed. Um, and as as we were saying, I mean, you know, the debate on the border today is about who has a right to be a citizen of the United States. One thing probably very few people realize is before the Civil War, we had massive immigration, but only white people were entitled to become naturalized citizens. You could not become a naturalized citizen if you were from most of the world other than Europe. Uh, that lasted a long time in, in parts of our uh, legal system. On the eve of the Civil War, uh, in the Dred Scott decision, the S Supreme Court said no black person can be a citizen of this country, regardless of they may have been born here, free, you know, that doesn't matter. They are not citizens. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the 13th abolished slavery, the 14th creates this principle of what we call birthright citizenship. 
anybody born in the United States as a citizen, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of who their parents are. Uh, that's an issue today because of children born to undocumented aliens. The, the parents are not citizens, but if the child is born in the United States, there's no question that child is entitled to citizenship according to the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And then to go further, the 14th Amendment says all persons, everybody, not even including non-citizens, are entitled to the equal protection of the law. It puts equality into our Constitution for the first time. The original Constitution said nothing about the equality of citizens with each other. Now that principle that as an American you are entitled to some basis of legal equality is made part of our Constitution. That's why, as I think you indicated, you know, I call this the second founding because it really created a new document. It wasn't just tinkering with the old Constitution. It made the Constitution something very different from what it was before. And we ought to think about those people, the, the people who wrote these amendments, uh, James Ashley, John Bingham. They're not, their names are not mm, household right, words. Right. But they had a profound influence on who we are today as Americans. Uh, I wanted to get to the idea that popular culture has influenced the way we think about Reconstruction. And then we have this call from Harry in Duluth, who I think is going to ask about that. Hi, Harry. Hi there, Gary. Thanks so much Hi, uh, for Dr. waiting. Connor. Yeah. What do you, you want to ask about? Well, first of all, I wanted to reintroduce introduced myself to Dr. Foner about 25 years ago. I wrote to him because my <laughs> grandfather uh, happened to be one of Dr. Dunning's, uh, of the Dunning School's uh, students at Columbia, where you teach, and where my <laughs> grandfather got a master's degree. And I've always been very fascinated. Uh, he happened to go to school in 1915, the year that Birth of a Nation was playing in New York and uh, and doing the Dunning School's uh, uh, work uh, by propaganda guy. Propaganda, propagandizing America that <laughs> we we uh, had un- misunderstood Reconstruction, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that that era with Wilson and the uh, birth of right. a nation and how America came to this notion that was so anti-historical about what had taken place during Reconstruction. Good. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> I your answer. Well, I mean, your your grandfather studied with Dunning, William Dunning, who was my predecessor many generations back as the scholar who taught the Civil War era at Columbia University. Uh, You know, in a quick nutshell, the Dunning School, as they call it, saw Reconstruction as the lowest point in the whole saga of American democracy, a period of corruption, misgovernment. Uh, And the reason for it was that they had made the terrible mistake of giving the right to vote to black men, the mistake according to the Dunning School. And... um, that black people are just incapable of taking part in democracy. But this this view was a historical view which dominated thinking way into the 20th century. Uh, but it also was a political view because it was a justification for the Jim Crow system which was being fastened upon the South right at that time. Between 1890 and 1920, let's say, black men in the South lost the right to vote. Racial segregation is imposed all over the place, many other forms of inequality. Or another way of putting it is those three constitutional amendments are basically nullified in the southern states uh, during the Jim Crow era, which is a lesson we need to think about. How can constitutional rights just be taken away? Woodrow Wilson had something to do with that. He segregated all the federal offices in Washington, D.C., 
Birth of a Nation, as you said, that film, you know, glorified the Ku Klux Klan and made black people look like animals, really, on the screen. Um, and so, um, yeah, this was a period of rampant racism, and sad to say, historians gave an underpinning, an underpinning of, of legitimacy to this racist uh, ideology, uh, and the so-called disaster of Reconstruction was part of the intellectual edifice of the Jim Crow system. I, I just, I have your book in front of me, and this is something that I tagged as I was reading, so I thought I would just share a couple sentences about the Dunning School, because this is important. Uh, you write, nonetheless, ingrained racism undermined the value of the Dunning School's scholarship. Convinced that blacks lack the capacity to participate intelligently in political democracy, they condemned Reconstruction. In the words of Dunning's Columbia School colleague John W. Burgess, for imposing the rule, rule of uncivilized Negroes over the whites of the South, inevitably producing an orgy of corruption and misgovernment. And then you go on to talk about this lost cause ideology, which is something that I wanted to ask you about because I was reading David Blight's work about how powerful this sense of the lost cause was. And he says, perhaps most of all, the lost cause became a version of history that allowed Southerners to form a collective identity as victims and survivors, and even with time as victors. Will, will you give us some context on the lost cause and how that's still right. influential today? Well, the lost cause is this glorification of the Confederacy and the struggle of the Confederacy for independence, and it glorifies both the individual soldiers but also the whole idea of Southern society. It is based on um, denying the fact that slavery was, as their vice president and uh, Alexander Stevens said, the cornerstone of the Confederacy. The Confederacy was a slave-based uh, society. Uh, but no, the war was actually about states' rights, about individual, uh, you know, freedom for white people. Slavery had nothing to do with it, according to that. And then, you know, the lo the lost cause doesn't develop right after the Civil War. Things are too chaotic in the South. But by the 1890s and early 20th century, that's when, for example, you get all these Confederate monuments built in the South uh, that have become very controversial nowadays. And those monuments are a statement of the glorification of the so-called Southern way of life, leaving slavery out of it, of course, and the uh, Confederate um, effort at independence. Uh, David Blight, a very, very fine historian, of course, a good, a good friend of mine, uh, and uh, he's written very uh, powerfully about all this. But, um, you know, you can still find that. You can find yeah. the idea of the lost cause uh, percolating in in strange places, even in if you remember this a while ago, you know Ken Burns's um, uh, TV famous TV series on the Civil War. Mm -hmm. You know, in the in the commentator uh, Shelby Foote, oh, you get yes. echoes of this lost cause, the glory of Confederate generals like um, Nathan B. Forrest, who was one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, but somehow that didn't uh, diminish his um, reputation, according to uh, Foote. Um, so. Um, yeah, the ideas of history matter. I think that's the bottom line here. What people think about history actually affects what they think about the present. And the old view of Reconstruction and this lost cause of the Confederacy helped to um, give justification to the denial of all the basic rights of African Americans 
under the Jim Crow system, which lasted all the way until the civil rights revolution of the 1960s. Historian Eric Foner is with us this morning, and we're talking about his terrific new book, The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution, to Rebecca in Minneapolis. Hey, Rebecca, thanks so much for waiting. Welcome. Thank you very much. I just wanted to say that... uh, I have been doing some work with the Poor People's Campaign recently, and the one of the leaders of that, Reverend Dr. William Barber II, has very much been talking about the ways in which the Civil War, the Reconstruction, and the Lost Cause movement have very much continued to impact our politics around race and economics today. And a lot of the work of the Poor People's Campaign is very much in line with what Dr. Foner is, is lifting up. Does that make sense to you, Eric? Uh, First of all, thank you for that. Uh, I know Dr. Barber pretty well, and in fact, his book, as I'm sure you know, uh, coming, which came out last year, is has a title. I don't. This is not exact, but it's about the need for a third reconstruction, the first reconstruction, which tried but in many ways didn't succeed in creating an interracial democracy in this country. The second, the civil rights revolution. We need a third one, he said, and as you suggested. This time, he says, it has to focus not so much on legal or constitutional equality, but economic equality. The first Reconstruction didn't quite succeed on that level because the famous 40 acres and a mule, the effort to give land to the former slaves to enable them to enjoy their freedom substantially, did not happen. The second, the civil rights movement, changed the laws tremendously, but of course, great economic inequalities persisted. And we now need a third one to tackle the even greater inequality in our country today. So, you know, I agree with uh, uh, Reverend Barber about this. And I, again, I uh, commend him for seeing that the Reconstruction era actually speaks to our present day 150 years later. I think it'd be valuable as we start to talk about the individual amendments to hear you uh, discuss what um, life was like for African-Americans as Congress began to debate these different amendments. What it was, lo- what was it like to live in America at that time as a, well, as a black be, American? Uh, the vast majority of black Americans had been slaves. Uh, there were free Negroes, of course, but most were slaves, four million of them when the Civil War broke out. Now when Congress begins debating Reconstruction, they're in this kind of legal limbo. They are no longer slaves. Everybody understands that. But what are they? And African-Americans throughout the South were demanding basically equality, equal rights. They wanted citizenship. They wanted the right to, you know, uh, have access to uh, uh, transportation and hotels and other public accommodations. Uh, They wanted education. They wanted all the things that were denied them uh, in slavery. They wanted the right to vote, particularly for men. Women, unfortunately, didn't have the right to vote anywhere uh, in the country at this moment. Um, But, um, you know, they also faced uh, violence, the Klan and groups like that. They faced President Andrew Johnson, who was deeply racist. He had taken over when Lincoln was assassinated and uh, basically wanted to just turn the South back over to white supremacy. So it was a very difficult moment, but also a moment full of hope and, you know, uh, ambition for the African-American community. And again, 
it they have to be part of the story. One of the problems with the old Dunning School and even with more recent historians is they don't look at sort of the black voice in Reconstruction. You can see the debates in Congress. You can see what, uh, you know, leaders are saying. But African-Americans are also helping to set the agenda of Reconstruction and to helping to push through these these uh, amendments, which abolished slavery, created equality before the law, and the 15th, giving black men the right to vote. So, um, you know, by 1870, full legal equality had been written into the Constitution for African Americans, particularly African American men, of course, when it came to voting. That was a remarkable achievement, given how deeply slavery had influenced uh, national development before that. Yeah, I have to say that one of the revelations of the book for me was what the debates were sounding like on uh, within Congress as these amendments were coming to the floor and what Southern Democrats were saying. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me grab a call here right. before we get to that to James at, at uh, McAllister College. James, is that right? Yes, that's right. Oh, hi. Good to have you on the line. Thank you. What do you want to tell us? Hi, Eric. This is Jim Stewart calling from McAllister Yeah, I, I thought I recognized that voice. Uh, James there is a very prominent uh, scholar of the abolitionist movement and 19th century history. So, oh, um, Professor, I'm glad you're listening. Well, it's fun to listen, and it's good to hear such a great discussion about connecting the past with the present. This is admirable on all counts. Eric, I just have a fast question for you. Uh, Wendell Phillips made the observation when the 13th Amendment was passed, and this is a quote, we've, abol- we've abolished the slave, but the master remains. And <laughs> I'm thinking about his insight there, which he con- continued all the way through the 14th and 15th Amendment, knowing that underneath this there was something else going on that was very terrifying. And I'd like to have you talk about the exception clause in the 13th Amendment within that context, if you can. Well, the 13th Amendment uh, says that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, can exist in the United States. And in that exception, the criminal exemption that people who have been who are in jail have been convicted of a crime can be forced to do involuntary labor. Now, when that was almost boilerplate language, the language of the 13th Amendment was taken directly from the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Nobody. This was not. Some people think, oh, they were plotting to have mass incarceration. No, uh, there were very few prisons. There were very few prisoners. But nonetheless, it was in. It was barely debated when Congress discussed the Thirteenth Amendment. But the result was it was kind of a loophole that inadvertently allowed for the rise of a giant system of convict labor in the South. Almost all of them African Americans, some whites, but mostly blacks. Uh, convicted of petty crimes, sent to jail, and then leased out to work for, you know, in mines, in, in uh, on plantations, for railroads. And, um, you know, that was a very unfortunate uh, result of the 13th Amendment, which had the glorious result of ending slavery throughout the whole country. But because of this loophole, uh, you know, the massive convict lease system uh, lasted for many decades in the South and was used to really suppress uh, the black population. So, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, looking at the original intent of constitutional amendments. That's, you know, a sort of conservative form of jurisprudence. But we also have to look at the sort of unintended consequences. And uh, massive prison labor was one. And even today, the courts of say, Prisoners can be set to labor without the basic rights of others. They don't have a right to form a union. They don't have a right to get the minimum wage because of this exemption in the 13th Amendment. 
since you mentioned uh, President Andrew Johnson, I, I just I don't want to miss this <laughs> that because you write in the book that he used racialized obstruction to try to stop these amendments and these laws. And Absolutely. you say you say something pretty interesting about this that goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. His ghost still haunts our discussion of race today. Wow. More than a century and a half later, why? Well, How? Johnson, uh, who was deeply, deeply racist um, and uh, but did not believe black people should be citizens or have virtually any rights, um, his arguments against the Civil Rights Act of 1866, against the 14th Amendment, was that they discriminated against whites. This is, or He didn't use this phrase, but what he was putting out was the idea of reverse discrimination. Elevating non-whites somehow takes something away from white people. And that idea we still see in our society uh, that, you know, the cry of that affirmative action is discrimination against white people, that, um, you know, uplifting blacks somehow takes something away from white Americans. So, um, you know, that Johnson pioneered that argument against the transformation that was taking place. He was not able to stop it. He was, as you know, eventually impeached, not convicted, but basically they <laughs> quieted him down after <laughs> after impeachment. Um, but I think, you know, that you hear that argument all the time. You even hear it from the Supreme Court that um, efforts to help non-whites somehow discriminate against white people. I mean, the, the answer to Black Lives Matter that we saw is you know, an element of American society was walking around saying white lives matter. That sounds to me like a pretty Uh, close connection to what you just described. Yeah, of course, white lives matter, but white people do not, you know, uh, Johnson said, well, none of this has been done for white people. But of course, white people don't need a constitutional amendment to declare them citizens. They were already citizens. White people didn't need the law to say uh, nobody can be discriminated against if they try to seek a, you know, a hotel or transportation. Nobody was keeping white people out of hotels. And similarly, nobody, you know, the police are not shooting unarmed white people all over the place. So, of course, all lives matter, no question about it. But, um, you know, the, the, some lives are in more danger than others. Let's just put it that way. Call here from Alan in Minneapolis. Hey, Alan, hi. Appreciate you waiting. Thank you for taking my call. You know, I'm, I'm a 55-year-old uh, individual, mm-hmm. and I really thought that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the amendments, the different amendments, went for everyone. And I just recently found out and learned that not just the police, the court system, and we're not even talking about the criminal court system. I recently filed a, a civil rights case against Minneapolis, the, and the judge and the city attorneys was able to bury evidence, they think just the evidence applied to convict people of color. They don't follow the rules nor the law. And this is something, and I figure as a 55-year-old individual with no criminal history, if I can be railroaded in the courts like this, what do the young brothers and sisters have any kind of chance in the court system to have a blemish on their record? Well, you know, look, obviously we have seen uh, a lot of evidence. I'm sorry that you had your uh, this unfortunate uh, experience. We've seen a lot of evidence uh, over time and recently that the court system, the criminal justice system is, uh, you know, often is biased against African Americans and other uh, minority groups. That That is an, an unfortunate fact. 
in my book, I, you know, my book is about the Constitution, not about specific criminal, you know, prosecutions. Uh, but I do make the argument that, you know, after the second founding, after these amendments were added to the Constitution, there's this long period of retreat headed by the Supreme Court, which whittles away, whittles away, little by little by little, at the basic rights that are supposedly guaranteed in the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, at, makes it impossible for the federal government to protect these rights and gives a sort of green light to the southern states to nullify them. So, you know, the le- one of the big lessons here is, you know, rights can be gained and rights can be taken away. And our Constitution is not self-enforcing. Uh, and if the Supreme, if a conservative Supreme Court takes a very narrow vision of what these amendments are about, uh, it's going to have very uh, negative effects on people's ability to enjoy these rights. So, you know, we have a conservative Supreme Court today. Lately, it has been, again, whittling away. I mean, the uh, Holder versus the Shelby County case where the Voting Rights Act was pretty much um, eviscerated by the court. Um, This happened in the 1880s and 90s, and uh, we have to make sure that it doesn't that retreat doesn't continue uh, today i think our minnesota listeners here would be interested to hear minnesota senator william windham in the right. in the debates on the floor who said a true republic rests upon the absolute equality of rights of the whole people high and low rich and poor white and black southern democrats were not saying things like that were they no, the Democrats uh, first, Northern Democrats, because the South was not represented to begin with, but then they would be uh, pretty soon afterwards. No, the basic arguments that were raised against these three constitutional amendments, one was just sheer outright racism. Uh, and, you know, we, we believe, we, we see that our uh, political debates today are sometimes pretty stormy and the political language can get kind of scurrilous. But, boy, go back and read the debates in Congress about and the the absolute, you know, candid statements of white supremacy, black inferiority. You cannot make these people citizens. They're incapable. You cannot give them the right to vote. They're incapable. This is a white man's country. White nationalism, as we call it today, was alive and well uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, at least in the Democratic Party, North and South. And the other argument was that um, really this was empowering the national government too much, for the national government to determine who's a citizen, for the national government to tell the states they can't violate equality before the law, uh, overturns the balance between, in the federal system, between state power and federal power. And in fact, that's what they were trying to do. They wanted the national government for the first time, to be able to intervene to stop the states from discriminating uh, against uh, one group of citizens or another. So um, the the intensity of the attacks on the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments uh, is a sign of how radically they did change the uh, constitutional structure. We have about three minutes. I think I can squeeze Todd's uh, call in here. Hey, Todd, what do you want to know? Hi there. I was recently in Washington, D.C. and had the opportunity to visit the uh, Museum of African American History and Culture. And I'm wondering uh, how Dr. Foner looks at that and whether that gives an accurate picture of Reconstruction and whether that's a good place for people to go to learn about it. What do you think? The good news is it's a great museum. I commend it. It's a bit of a ways from Minnesota, but anybody who's listening and is in Washington, I certainly urge you to go to see it. It's a it's a really path breaking 
and fascinating uh, portrait of the African-American history, American history. Um, I will say, and I have said this to <laughs> the director, Lonnie Bunch, who's a good friend of mine, that Reconstruction, I think, needs more attention in that museum. Uh, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, is somehow... You know, this happens when people are teaching a survey course in American history. You sort of get to the end of the Civil War and you're kind of exhausted and you then jump forward. And I would like to see more attention to Reconstruction in that museum. But, you know, museums are always a work in progress. You can't change what's in a book after it's published, but you can certainly change how a museum presents one thing or another. And uh, But overall, I think it's, it's an excellent museum. Certainly, it's up to date in its historical presentation. It draws on the most recent scholarship and presents it in a very accessible way. And so I... Um, I commend the people who put it together. But but are there not enough, what, documents or artifacts? No, or it's what? just that yeah. Reconstruction is scattered. I mean, oh, the I sort of legal part is over here. The economic part is over here. There's no real sense of Reconstruction as a time period after the Civil War when all these things were going on at the same time. Political struggles, economic struggles, social struggles for acceptance, the creation of black institutions like the black church, uh, or the black schools and colleges, you know, created in Reconstruction. So um, I, I think it doesn't really give a sense of Reconstruction as a coherent moment when this really commendable effort was made to make this a society not tyrannized by racial inequality. I, I'm going to recommend readers zero in on what Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were saying about the 15th Amendment. As someone who's really interested in that history, we do we don't have time for it, but I'm so glad you included it. Eric, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. Eric Foner's book is called The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution.